Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on select Fridays in May, each film touches upon artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, kicking off with Pan's Labyrinth by Guillermo del Toro on May 10th at nortonsimon.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome to Film Week. I'm Larry Mantle, joined this week by critics Charles Solomon of Animation Scoop and Animation Magazine, Andy Klein, and Leo Lowenstein. We start right off with When You Finish Saving the World, starring Julianne Moore and Finn Wolfhard Jesse Eisenberg in a feature directorial debut. The film is rated R. Andy, please start us on When You Finish Saving the World. Well, this is Jesse Eisenberg's, uh, I think, directorial debut. And uh, he's written a part that I think would have been something he would have been cast to do 20 years ago. <laughs> it's kind of, I, I felt like it was kind of sub-Noah Bombach. <laughs> uh, it's about a dysfunctional family where the, the father is some kind of businessman that we're never even really clear what he does. The mother runs a women's shelter. And the son is uh, a high school student with a uh, podcast channel or, you know, a YouTube channel uh, called Z Cats because his name is Ziggy Cats, where he plays new songs and he's making up to $90 a week off, <laughs> off tips from people who like him. Uh, basically, uh, he is rebelling. He's all involved in his adolescent angst. And his mother, for whatever reason, possibly partly because of this, at the women's shelter, there's a new arrival who has a teenage son. And Julianne Moore, who plays the mother, uh, who plays the Ziggy Katz's mother, uh, decides to interfere in his life. She thinks he's really promising and he shouldn't go to work at, at his dad's auto shop. He should really be, you know, going off to college and doing all this and essentially really takes liberties of pushing herself on him. Whether there's a little erotic frisson there, I, I didn't pick up on it, but somehow I wonder. And it, but it more seems like she's looking for a substitute son. Yeah, what did you think of that, Lael? I had a slightly different take than Andy did, maybe because I am a mother of a teenage son, and uh, I could sort of I could relate to Julianne Moore's character's um, alienation from her own son, who you know completely pushes her away and gets irritated should she even knock on his door. And I, I thought that her kind of reaching out to nurture the uh, son of this new arrival at the shelter was more just a gesture of, of nurturing, really. And at the same time, her son is trying desperately to impress this very smart, uh, politically aware girl at school who he, he's just failing abysmally at doing that. I thought really what it was about was just people who are trying to be seen, who want to be seen, and who sort of constantly fail at seeing others, and the ways in which we're always kind of missing each other just slightly. I thought it was, it could have been maybe a better film, a sharper film, but I give it props, and this was based on uh, Eisenberg's, I think, an audio book that he did during the pandemic, and it's a nice little starter project, so it's it's certainly got potential, and it's got really sharp performances from Moore and Finn Wolfhart, who we know from Stranger Things, and it, so yeah. it's and decent. And it's got one great sight gag, which I won't give away. And uh, I, but it it really is as good as anything I saw this week, and that's a very low <laughs> standard. When you finish saving the world is rated R. It's in select theaters. Missing, a thriller starring Storm Reed and Nia Long, written and directed by Nicholas D. Johnson and Will Merrick Lale. So this is the same team that five years ago did a movie called Searching with John Cho looking for his teenage daughter who's gone missing. Um, but 
it's using, as that one did, only screens. So uh, the film is shot through the perspective of various cameras that are available through the internet, through people's computer screens, through their phones and so forth. And it's a really interesting kind of experiment in in style. And uh, the way that it's done is constantly gripping Uh, It holds your attention. I did think that the gimmick wore itself a little bit thin after a while because you start wondering, can they keep this up? Can they keep showing this story through all these different, you know, pre-existing camera techniques? But it is sort of interesting to see where you can push the the formula. Uh, In this case, it's a teenage girl who's searching for her mom who's gone missing while on vacation in Cartagena, Colombia with a new boyfriend. Uh, You know, so many sketchy things already lining up. Um, There are too many red herrings for my taste, but for the most part, it does kind of walk the walk of the thriller and it it keeps you invested in in what's going to happen. It's hard for me to believe it was five years ago that the preceding film was. Yeah, did that film sustain it? Better than this? I think maybe it did. Also, it was the novelty of it. It was new, yeah. So we were all kind of riveted to that. And, you know, I just remember the intense reaction to the trailer. And that film did pretty well at the box office, I think. So, you know, it's how long can they keep this up? I don't think they can keep shooting every film this way. But it's it's an interesting formal challenge to try to keep doing this. Missing is the film starring Storm Reid and Nia Long. Nicholas D. Johnson and Will Merrick are the writer-directors. It's rated PG-13 and in wide release. The Icelandic drama Beautiful Beings is Iceland's official entry for a Best International Feature Film consideration for the Oscars this year. Beautiful Beings is written and directed by Gumander Arnar Gumansson. Uh, what did you think, Andy, of Beautiful Beings? I think it's amazing that you got the pronunciation right. Why well, The um, producers deserve props. They gave me the pronouncer. Okay. That's the only way I got that. <laughs> okay. Uh, this is pretty good. Uh, it, it didn't really grab me, but uh, it's essentially uh, kind of a, a knockoff of Mean Streets set in Reykjavik, or some town in Iceland, I assume there's another town, uh, about these four misfits uh, who are junior high school students. And one of them is the crazy guy. One of them is like Robert De Niro in Mean Streets and keeps getting them into scrapes. Uh, The others are basically a bad home lives. Uh, There's a lot of abuse going on. And... uh, Eventually, in their reacting to the abuse, things get really violent. And uh, people, uh, by the end, uh, you feel sympathetic to these guys and really bothered that they've gone off on the spiraling that happens when you have one crazy guy who's always going to take things one step too far. I thought it it, it was adequate. Uh, it was far from the best Icelandic film I've seen, but there you go. Beautiful Beings is unrated. It's at Lemley's Glendale Theater. The Super 8 Years, a biographical documentary uh, directed by Annie Ernaux and David Ernaux-Brio, uh, who's Annie's son. Both are making their feature directorial debuts. Uh, this very much a family story. Uh, Charles, please start us off on The Super 8 Years. Well, I'll confess, I do not know Madame Ernaux's fiction, for which she just won the Nobel Prize, but... After seeing this, I'm very curious, and I'm going to go to Amazon France and, you know, order a couple of her books, because she's keeping our attention for more than an hour, showing just old home movie footage of herself and her family. But her account of the contrast between the very sort of model, this is the family you would like to be a part of in France, lives and the tensions and the problems underneath as she's beginning her career as a fiction writer uh, is intriguing. And she holds our interest through her discussions rather than through these fairly stereotypical images of the family opening Christmas presents and the kids learning to ski. So I enjoyed it very much and found it uh, very interesting. We're talking about the French documentary, The Super 8 Years Lail. 
I thought this was really quite fascinating. Uh, the fact that Ernaud has found these films, this, the, all this footage, and is able to assess it both from the perspective of 2020-something, from the perspective of being a mother of these children, her children, from the perspective of being the now-divorced wife of the man she was married to who does all the shooting. Uh, you know, there's there's all these different sort of ways to read into it, kind of both political and personal things in terms of, you know, the, uh, being a feminist and the fact that that uh, her husband was the one who was holding the camera the, the whole time. And she talks about, there's voiceover where she's talking about how she would have liked to be able to maybe use the camera from time to time. And then there's also the political angle of it that at, um, they have footage of going to Albania and Russia at a time when, you know, that wasn't done very much and and so it's really interesting the the absence of sound in the in the footage that we see in the home movies the addition of sound through the narration and then kind of just the sort of contemplation that it leaves to the viewer to consider what has happened in the interim years of the passage of time also we're so accustomed to seeing high definition footage that it gives a different kind of a softer, warmer quality to see this grainy Super 8 footage, which we're just so not used to seeing. It's it's a really kind of different way to examine our memories. And I thought it was kind of a beautiful film in many ways. We're talking about the documentary The Super 8 Years. It's in French with English subtitles directed by Annie Ernaud and David Ernaud Briot, uh, Annie's son. Uh, the film is at Lemley's Glendale Theater, Lemley's Monica Film Center, and uh, starting Monday at Lemley's Claremont Theater, The Super 8 Years. The South Korean sci-fi action film Chung Yi is written and directed by Yoon Sang-ho. Oh, Andy, what'd you think? Uh, what did I think? Uh, there are things to say that are nice about this film. The The opening is a, a whiz-bang uh, action scene that is clearly entirely CGI. And then you find out, oh, it actually is a simulation within the world of the film. It's We're several hundred years in the future Earth is largely uninhabitable, but there are these uh, colonies and they're having a war and the war has been going on over 40 years. The woman in the action scene at the beginning was the greatest heroic warrior uh, of that war, but she couldn't quite seal the deal on her last mission. And so they've been trying to clone her ever since. They downloaded her entire brain contents to the computer and they keep constructing new versions of her in hopes of being able to have an army of great woman warriors. But they, the experiments aren't going well. Not ironically, uh, the person in charge of the project is her daughter, who is now in her 40s. And the reason mom went off to war was because the daughter had cancer and she needed an operation. They didn't have the money. And mom went off and got killed because of it. So the daughter has all this emotional stake in it, mm -hmm. which she doesn't seem to be dealing with for most of the film. But it sets up a dynamic near the end that does have some emotional impact, uh, somewhat like uh, Matthew McConaughey and uh, Ellen Burstyn at the end of Interstellar, where you have this you know, grown woman and the mother who is a clone but the same age as her. Uh, the problem with the film for me is that it is, once you're out of the simulation, everything still looks entirely CGI. I mean, this really seems to be a film that was totally composed on a computer, you know, with actors doing green screen. And you get some nice images, but I find that somehow very off-putting. If you're into that kind of thing, you'll probably really enjoy it. Uh, Chang Yi is the South Korean sci-fi action film we're talking about, written and directed by Yon Sang-ho. It's rated R in Korean with English subtitles, and it's streaming on Netflix. Uh, Lael, let's at least uh, quickly get started with Chess Story, uh, which is in German with English subtitles, uh, directed and co-written by uh, Philipp uh, Stossel. What did you think of this? This is quite a... Quite a Impressive historical drama with a very strong performance by 
Oliver Masucci as a lawyer who is taken captive in uh, Vienna, 1938, because he has access to um, the various accounts, bank accounts and so forth, of uh, people who the Gestapo are wanting to seize. All right, we'll continue with what Lael has to say about Chess Story. Also uh, coming up, we'll talk about the Japanese animated film That Time I Got Reincarnated as a Slime, the movie, Scarlet Bond. I love the titles of the Japanese anime films. We'll hear more about that when we continue on Film Week on KPCC. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Ghost Waltz by Oliver Mayer, a bold original recovery of Juventino Rosas, one of Mexico's most significant composers. Follow Rosas from his father's early death to his friendship with ragtime genius Scott Joplin, now on stage through June 2nd. Tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. Support for LAS comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies, held on select Fridays in May. Each film touches upon Spanish artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Pan's Labyrinth by Guillermo del Toro and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Luis Buñuel. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on four consecutive Fridays starting May 10th. More information at nortonsimon.org. It's Film Week. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us. Just a reminder that tickets are on sale now for the 21st Annual Film Week Academy Awards preview. It's coming up the week right before the Academy Awards. Please join us on Sunday, March 5th, 1 in the afternoon at the historic Orpheum Theater on Broadway in downtown Los Angeles. It's going to be a great event. All of our Film Week critics on stage, and we hope that you'll join us. Tickets again available at laist.com slash events. That's L-A-I-S-T dot com slash events. We hope to see you there at the 21st Annual Film Week Oscar Preview. I'm joined by critics Lael Lowenstein, Andy Klein, and Charles Solomon. Lael is uh, just telling us about Chess Story, which is a film directed and co-written by Philip Stozel, uh, starring Oliver Masucci. Uh, and, Lael, you were saying this based on a true story? Is that right or not? Well, I don't think it's based on a true story, although there may be stories similar to this, but it is based on a book by uh, Stefan Zweig, who uh, wrote about this man who teaches himself to play chess as a way of learning to survive a year in solitary confinement. Um, He's actually in a hotel, and uh, this guy, Oliver Mizuchi, who plays him, is, is just terrific. He has to wage all these different battles, both against his own impending insanity against the Gestapo who are interrogating him and torturing him uh, against his memories of the past. And as a viewer, we don't always know what's past, what's present, what's real, what isn't. Uh, The film begins with a sort of a futuristic scene where we think he's been liberated, um, but then it goes back into his past incarceration. And we're being sort of twisted and and turned about ourselves in terms of what we understand is happening. But it's a very, very strong performance. Uh, it's it's extremely well-directed and one of the best uses of sound design that I've heard in a, in a while, the impending uh, madness being brought on by the use of violin strings, various sound effects. Um, and it's it's a it's a very, very strong, strong psychological, historical drama. Chess Story is in German with English subtitles. It's unrated, and you can see it at Lemley's Monica Film Center, Santa Monica. The Japanese animated film That Time I Got Reincarnated as a Slime, the movie Scarlet Bond, directed by Yusuhito Kikuchi. Uh, Charles, please tell us about it. Well, despite the improbable title, (laughs) this is a series that's been around for several years. I think it's on its fourth uh, season of the broadcast series, rather popular. And the title character was an office worker 
who got stabbed um, and was reincarnated as a puddle of slime in this weird kind of sword and sorcery world. But as he absorbed uh, things around him, he took on their powers and knowledge and so forth. And uh, this is a spinoff. It's a, a separate narrative or tied in narrative from the, uh, the main storyline that deals with the war between orcs and ogres. Um, there's a noble queen who's sacrificing herself for her people and a noble ogre who wants to serve her because she's sacrificed to, bring, to save his life. The problem is when they don't introduce the very paper-thin villain until you're about an hour into the film, he's not terribly interesting. And then our uh, Rimuru, our slime hero, has absorbed so many things and become so powerful that you wonder, well, why doesn't he just take care of this and, and, and be done with it? Why do we need this second hour of the movie? You should just be able to take over things. So if you're a fan of the series, and there are many of them out there, uh, you'll have fun. But I don't think this will uh, recruit many new uh, viewers for the, to the series. That time I got reincarnated as a slime, the movie, Scarlet Bond uh, is rated PG-13 in Japanese with English subtitles, though a dubbed version also available, and it's in wide release. Out of Exile, a crime thriller written and directed by Kyle Kawika Harris. Uh, it stars Adam Hampton, Ryan Merriman, and Kyle Jacob Henry. Andy, please tell us about Out of Exile. Well, you could classify it as a neo-noir, but it has nothing of noir style to it. It is, however, filled with doom and fate taking control of things and all these sort of... Uh, deterministic things that, that are part of the noir profile. It's basically a heist-gone-bad movie. Uh, it goes bad for the same reason that uh, in the Icelandic things, film, film things went bad, because uh, the leader of the heist has his younger brother, who is a total hothead and a drug addict, as part of the heist. And, of course, he shoots somebody, shoots a guard, and he dies. They're doing this bank robbery. And the poor big brother is trying to get his life together. And this has just made things infinitely complicated, and everybody starts betraying everybody while the FBI is closing in on them. This is perfectly adequate within its genre, but i got to say there's nothing very special to recommend it. I've seen this film 20 times, and uh, I didn't see anything new here that was worth crowing about. Out of Exile is rated R. It's at the Galaxy Theater Mission Grove and available on demand. The biographical drama Bezos, The Beginning, stars Armando Gutierrez, Koa Lee is the director, and the film's written by R.V. Romero and Allison Burnett, based on the book Zero to Hero by Tashina Ebanks. Uh, Bezos, the beginning, Lael. This is pretty much a sort of standard by-the-book docudrama biography biography. Uh, it takes uh, the humble, well, not so humble origins uh, of, of Bezos um, from his, you know, working at a New York company doing extremely well and then leaving with his wife, Mackenzie Scott, and, and starting a company on his own, which he called, wanted to call apparently initially Cadabra. And everyone thought that sounded like cadaver. Yeah. So, so, so he didn't, so he ended up with, with the different, with Amazon was actually the the third name, I think, and at least in the movie that he that he looks at. Um, there's nothing particularly inspired here. the The performances are not particularly inspired or um, original, but it it does sort of go through the main story beats of his life. And uh, you know, if you look, you're looking for a a a fictional life primer on Bezos. Here you go. There you go. Bezos, the beginning, Andy. Yeah, this is kind of bland, quite frankly, and uh, I don't know to what degree it's entirely accurate. I, you know, it can't be totally. One of the things that they do gloss over a lot is the least admirable thing about Bezos, which is his view of employees. Mm -hmm. And there's one confrontation with one of the higher-up initial employees that is very telling. 
where, you know, the guy says, why don't I have founders points in this company? And Bezos says, because you didn't ask for it. And if you don't know what you're worth, I'm not going to give it. And other than that, though, they never deal with his labor practices, which I think are a substantial issue that should be somewhere in the film. Bezos, The Beginning, directed by Koa Lee, is rated R. It's available on demand starting Tuesday. New Gods, uh, Young Jian, is a Chinese animated fantasy film directed by Ji Zhao, uh, written by Mu Xuan. Charles, what did you think of New Gods, Young Jian? Well, we've had a series in recent years of the Chinese trying to really enter the animation market, both for their domestic audience and to try and acquire some of the soft power Japan gets from anime and manga. And it has the same strengths and weaknesses as the other recent releases. It's an extremely opulent movie. There are enormous vistas with endlessly detailed textures and designs and patterns and sculptures and explosion effects and graphic effects. It feels, though, like two stories not very well grafted together. On one hand, Yang Jian is a god who uh, his third eye has been shut through a trauma. He is involved in trying to free his sister, who's holding down uh, the power of these phoenixes under a mountain. He gets involved with his own nephew. And all this takes place in the realm of the gods, or that part of the story is in the realm of the gods, um, which uses a lot of traditional Chinese designs or based on traditional Chinese designs and is handsome if a very kind of formulaic superpower fighting movie. But the other half of the movie has Yang John living as a bounty hunter in a, a broken down ship with a couple of misfit friends. And it's just shamelessly ripped off from Cowboy Bebop. But without the the style that uh, Shinichiro Watanabe brought to Bebop that's made it such an iconic uh, series. So you've got these two pieces that never really come together and make a coherent whole. New Gods, Yang Jian is the Chinese animated film. It's available in Mandarin with English subtitles as well as a dubbed version. The film's unrated and it's being shown in selected theaters. The Australian drama Blaze stars Julia Savage, Simon Baker, and Yael Stone. It's directed by Del Catherine Barton, written by Huna Mwiro and Del Catherine Barton, the director. Andy, what did you think of Blaze? Uh, I thought it was passable. I didn't wasn't particularly impressed. Uh, it's a 12-year-old girl who already has a very rich fantasy life and seems kind of isolated, lives alone with her father, witnesses a rape and murder in, while she's out on a stroll, and she's totally traumatized uh, and starts retreating more and more into her fantasy world where she has a big, friendly dragon that is, is her protector. Uh, she goes through whole stages of being able to deal with this, not being able to deal with it. Mostly it seemed like it was an excuse to have visually sumptuous fantasy sequences with some stop-motion animation and lots of, of surreal-looking landscapes that's kind of what she's dreaming or hallucinating. Uh, but in the end, there's just not much there. Blaze uh, is unrated. The film can be seen at the Cine Lounge Sunset. It's also available to uh, uh, on demand at home. The 2001 movie Brotherhood of the Wolf, the French action horror film directed by Christophe Gans, uh, who co-wrote it with Stéphane Cabel, has been re-released with a 4K restoration. Alamo Drafthouse is showing the R-rated film. Uh, Andy, gosh, hard to believe we're looking at more than 20 years ago yep. for this film. And I know just critics love this movie. I This was my number one film of 2002. Uh, I absolutely adored it. And it's like the kind of movie where I feel like, did the guy read my mind as to what I wanted to see? It's a period romance set in 18th century France, 
and uh, it's about uh, based on a true incident of a beast that was killing people. Except here, you find out it's not really a beast, but that's okay. And there's a heroic adventurer scholar who is trying to figure out what's really going on, helped by his Indian who he, Indian assistant, an Iroquois that he picked up in Canada, who is a martial arts expert. And so you have Mark DeCascos. De this is for you. <laughs> yeah. Mark DeCascos, who's really good martial artist and fabulous sort of Hong Kong style stunt work. It clearly was inspired by all that. You have romance. You have uh, Vincent Cassell as a horrible villain, Monica Bellucci, beautifully shot. I mean, I, I just couldn't have loved this film more. Brotherhood of the Wolf, a new 4K restoration of the 2001 film, and you can see it at the Alamo Draft House in downtown Los Angeles. It's rated R. Presumably at some point it'll be available in that 4K restoration for home viewing as well. Uh, real quickly, Charles, can you tell us about the documentary Flying Boat? You've got like 20 seconds. Uh, one of those films where you want to slap the filmmaker and re-edit the film because they've got a fascinating topic in these beautiful old Art Deco planes that could land in the water and it wanders and stumbles and goes off on tangents and tells you much less than it could or should. Well, Film Week is a show where we don't want any filmmakers harmed by any of the reviews. So, written and directed <laughs> by Dirk Braun, Flying Boat is unrated. It's at uh, Lemley's Monica Film Center in Santa Monica. Reminder, tickets available for the 21st Annual Film Week Academy Awards preview with all our Film Week critics on stage at the historic Orpheum Theater downtown Los Angeles, Sunday afternoon, March 5th, exactly a week ahead of the Oscars being given out in Hollywood. Please join Join us. Tickets available at LAS.com slash events. John Horn coming up with an event Netflix held at the Academy Museum with filmmakers Del Toro Cuaron and Gonzalez Inyaratu. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Mix Mix, The Filipino Adventures of a German Jewish Boy by Boney B. Alvarez. Inspired by true events from the life of Ralph Price, after escaping Nazi Germany, a newfound tropical refuge in the Philippines is upended when Japan invades the islands. On stage through June 16th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. Support for LAist comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies, held on select Fridays in May. Each film touches upon Spanish artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Pan's Labyrinth by Guillermo del Toro and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Luis Buñuel. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on four consecutive Fridays starting May 10th. More information at nortonsimon.org. It's Film Week on KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle. Earlier this month at a Netflix event at the Academy Museum, our John Horn spoke with not one, but three of Mexico's biggest filmmakers, Guillermo del Toro, Alfonso Cuaron, and Alejandro González Iñárritu. Del Toro and Cuaron met in the 90s when Cuaron was working in Mexican television. Cuaron and Iñárritu met through cinematographer Emmanuel Lubezki, who you'll hear referred to by his nickname Chivo in this conversation. Del Toro and Iñárritu both made films with Netflix this year, Pinocchio and Bardo. Cuaron's Oscar-winning 2019 film Romo was also a Netflix film. What worries you and what gives you hope about the state of movie going and storytelling more broadly? What gives me hope is that people are starting to, to really emerge with new voices and with new proposals and, and daring proposals. That gives me a lot of hope, like to see new movies that are uh, trying different ways of telling a story. I think the only concern will be that the technical aspect of the different ways the people is experiencing now uh, films will affect the ideas behind. You know, what I'm saying, I think that 
I think the biggest thing that we should be aware as filmmakers, because I think we cannot control the technology, we cannot control the 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 habits of the world audiences. Uh, that's something that is out of control of anybody's hands. Uh, te technological things will be keep moving with or without consent. But I think uh, nobody should be surrendered to them and put ideas on that side. Uh, I mean, subordinated to them. I think if the ideas keep being uh, thoughtful, brightness, and deep, powerful, no matter which media you will, they will get through, the ideas will survive. The only other tools always will be evolving, not even ending. I think that will be the concern that suddenly we 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 change the order of the importance of things. You know, I don't I don't have so much worry, but as I'm curious, I'm curious because we're living a very specific time in cinema, in which the paradigms are changing, and they are changing. It's such a big shift. What is happening now is as big as and at the end of the twenties, the shift between silent film and talkies. And uh, I'm really, really intrigued to see how what is going to happen after. I hope that I get to see that. There were a lot of really good movies that opened theatrically last year that basically nobody saw. Tar, She Said, Women Talking, Till among them. So last year, little quiz of the top 10 movies at the box office last year, how many were sequels? 10. Yeah. But look... Uh, let, let's let's take it one step at a time because if you go back to classical Hollywood and you see the five sequels to the Thin Man movies or the Gold Diggers 33, Gold Diggers 34, like uh, sequels and, and remakes and all that is not the problem. The problem, I think, is that the popular entertainment is confused with the importance of a movie, I think. Most of the films that you mentioned, these, these specific films, they're going to have long lives and they will keep on, there will be experience in the decades to come. Well, some of those other uh, films that made so much money, that, that was the end of it. That was the end of their lives. I'm not saying all of them, but many of them. So we don't know about what is going to really uh, endure. And I think that that's important aspect of cinema. Posterity will play a joke on everyone. And, and the reality for me, having been one of the movies that was released on the week of Omicron and Spider-Man. Same, same weekend, Nightmare Alley was Omicron, which annihilated the, the adult audience, and Spider-Man, which just destroyed at the box office. I still love that movie, and if it takes 10, 20 years for it to find its audience, I'm really okay with that. But I, I think we cannot, we cannot uh, uh, in a way, disagree with what John is saying. I agree in a way that it's tragic that these other films has not been experienced in the big format as they should. So, I mean, that all the world cannot share that excitement at the times when you see a great movie in a great format and everybody's talking. That was incredible. The, the cultural impact is different than when it doesn't happen. Now, can we control that the people will not stop seeing films in the iPads, in computers, in TV, no. in phones? No, we can't control that. What we can control, I again make the point, is we just have to make sure as filmmakers that the idea is not the size of an iPhone. <laughs> the idea has to be as big as a big screen. And lastly, I will say that I always kind of make a, a parallel with music industry. You know, before you can see only a, a classical or a concert in a music hall, and then it came the gramophone, and then it came the radio, and then it came the Walkman, and then now in our devices, in our headset. And now what I'm saying is the amount of music that is produced now is incredible contemporary classic music, jazz, hip-hop, jazz... And some of that music, it belongs, and people just listen in, in their houses, and sometimes you go to a concert. So what I'm saying, the choices are incredible. Now, what are the most successful and, and, and blockbuster albums? The most commercial ones, but incredible music is available in everything that you want to do. So I think that's going to be the way for film. Unfortunately, because I share with you that it's incredible tragic that the great films are not shown in the big but, but John, and, uh, and, and uh, I think that the other thing is, I think the coin is flipping in the air. And is, is, look, look, we are in a decade where streaming came 
to maturity. It, it coincided with a massive world epidemic. We cannot know where the coin is going to land, if it's going to be heads or tails this year or next year. It'll take a decade to know where we're going. You all have made movies for Netflix, uh, Roma, Bardo, and Pinocchio. I'm sorry, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Yep. That's the one. Um, but we're starting to see belt tightening among all the streamers. Warner Brothers Discovery is taking old content off its streaming sites as part of deep cost-cutting measure, uh, measures. Disney has lost $8 billion on streaming, $4 billion in the last year alone. Netflix says its new mandate is bigger, better, fewer. Does that concern you? What do you, I mean, I think uh, studios behave like studios. I mean, they demolish the Phantom of the Opera stage to do the Transformers right. But uh, I think that if you only do studio movies, then you are only concerned about studio politics. But if you are a lot more malleable and you can work outside of that, you, you can and should. The contradiction is that Roma could have not been made without a streaming service. Yeah, Bardo, Bardo will have never been done. Nobody in this town, I can have a lot of Oscars, you know, but you know, doesn't matter. Nobody wants to make Bardo. The, the irony and the paradox is that these streamers sometimes, I put it, they are putting gems in the screen and a lot of other things that I don't, I don't share. But without those opportunities, a lot of filmmakers will not be shooting now. In Mexico... 70% of the filmmakers I do are doing things with streamers, with everybody. What I'm saying is there's, uh, there's something that is now evolving to, I don't know what will be the end, but there's a very difficult time ahead to find out exactly. And again, the point is what Alfonso was saying, the language, if we subordinate the film to the TV language, the people will not have a reason to go to cinema. Let me put it this way. To put a film in a screen, in an IMAX, doesn't make it a good film. Let's not confuse the, the, the conversation in the format. That's what I'm saying. Let's talk about cinema and what filmmakers can do. It's the size which of is the idea, ideas. not the size of the screen. Exactly. You know? The yeah. size of the idea, not the size yeah. of the of The, of the, of the, the delivery screen. system. <laughs> the interesting thing is that this conversation, it happens to be very a very American conversation. This conversation in which when we talk about cinema we end up talking about the business. Cinema is way broader. The conversation in other countries tends to be about the films themselves. Can I make a, a, a parallel? It's about if we talk about coffee and we end up about, about the profit of, 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 of Starbucks. Yes, Starbucks, yeah, but coffee is a, much, it's a culture that is lived in many different ways around the world in different environments. In Italy, <laughs> exactly. No, coffee. we can have a passion, I think, about coffee and the flavor and the, if it's African, Colombian. But when we talk about only about the obsession of Starbucks, then we are reducing the whole possibilities, I think. Star John Horn talking with Mexican filmmakers Guillermo del Toro, Alfonso Cuaron, and Alejandro Gonzalez in Yaritu. More of their conversation when we come back. It's Film Week on KPECC. Let's get right back to John Horn's conversation with filmmakers Alfonso Cuaron, Alejandro Gonzalez Inyaritu, and Guillermo del Toro. You'll hear Guillermo reference Cha-Cha-Cha. That's the production company the three started in 2007. I want to ask you about collaboration and about when you're working with one another, how do you make sure that you are helping that other person make the best version of his film and not the best version of what you think his film should be? We, we, never, we never would do that. I mean, we, well, that's you know, a good question. That's a very good very question. Good, At least for me, it's a good question. I mean, I, uh, every time we are, we know the three of us are stubborn, but we know also that if, if there's a point where, where you, the other won't see a point, even if you think you're right, it's not his point. And I don't think we've ever uh, really... No, but it, uh, even in the, in, the, in the occasions that that could happen, it's very different because we know each other so well that so, so I know the tendencies of Guillermo, yes. the tendencies <laughs> of Alejandro. I'm sure they know my tendencies of what I like or how I would do things. Yeah. So we understand where the other person is coming from. And the important thing is to understand what is 
behind the approach. And we rarely say, I told you so. Rarely. But, <laughs> but, but, but I think that there's three levels. Guillermo could have done a masterpiece. If he, should, if yes. he should have listened to me, yes. maybe he will have maybe a good masterpiece. masterpiece. No, but, but like we, we have three conversations. One before the movie is made, one after the movie is made, and one after the movie is released. And in the three, there are very different needs. Anna. But I think that we know each other very well. They have warned me. Both of them have warned me when I'm about to make a mistake and I go ahead and make it. That line between when you think that you are giving a good advice and then, as, as Guillermo said, sometimes the advice that you gave end up being the good advice and then you have to commit your mistakes and learn from them. But sometimes, sometimes you think that you have a good advice and then you were wrong and that's beautiful. I remember once I visited you in Gravity and I visited the set and you and Chivo were trying to figure out there was this moment that Sandra Bullock was kind of with, with, with Arnes flying in the, in the rocket in the studio. And there was this very complicated movement. I think you were shooting when the drop of the water was in and the camera was moving and the crane and the Arnes was not working and the camera was getting into the Arnes and Sandra's movement was super uncomfortable to make. Was blah, 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 blah. And it was a one shot, obviously super complicated. And I was there and I said to Alfonso, you know, have you considered maybe to cover a little bit from this angle in order that if you don't get a blah, blah. And he said, no, 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 I said, cabron, just, 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 just do it just, just for your sanity, just to have it in. And he said, no, if I do it, I know that I will use it and I don't want to use it. So I don't want to even give me that. And I, and I went out there very wary. I said, I, it is one of those things that you, as a friend, said, oh, my God. And he nailed it. And it would have been, if he would have heard me, I, I, I would have given a bad advice because he knew what he was doing. There is artistic advice and there is emotional advice. And... Artistic is like the, you know, how the movie's going to get made, or you're saying to Alfonso, you should cover it this way. Emotional is like when something doesn't go well, or you're in a dark place, you don't think your movie's working. How much would you say your collaboration, your partnership, your friendship is also that part that you're helping each other when somebody's not feeling good? I think the, the, the privilege and the, the, the blessing side of this friendship, uh, John, is that we have a very privileged job, obviously. We are very privileged men in that sense. But at the same time, this job is not easy. It's very risky and it's very lonely. So to share and walk with somebody in tough times and good times, to when somebody's success is your success and somebody's failure is your failure and you share that, honestly, that's something that I think very few people can say it truly and because we understand where we are sitting at and we come from another country uh, we are not we don't belong in that sense truly from here we just be in a way there's a lot of things that unite us in our past yeah. I think that make it even more strong because if you will be Australian or American whatever but we share a past mm -hmm. and a point of view so I think to share failure with somebody make it much more easier and, and that, that's the beauty of the friendship you know there were two reports very recently about how women fare directing and as department heads in Hollywood, and it's terrible. You are in the position of power where you can hire women and people of color as department heads. Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask you very frankly, how do you think you've done, and do you think there's room for improvement? I'll give you, I'll give you the numbers on Pinocchio are excellent. Uh, we, um, we had uh, about 45% of the people of the uh, people that work on Pinocchio were uh, female many of the animators uh, the key animators were key animating female animators were key animating for the first time and uh, and I think uh, in general our numbers there were very very conscientiously planned to the point where we actually created a unit to shoot in Mexico and a portion of the film in Mexico and Mexico is uh, the numbers in Mexico are going the other way in many ways. The most interesting female directors are female directors right now. So there is, I think, uh, again, we're talking about uh, industrial numbers, and I think we have to commit to that change because we're losing 50% of the conversation. No, I think you are right. I think that thing has to change radically. I think it's changing, not as fast as it should. And I think that in this, uh, in Bardo, in Bardo, obviously, uh, 95 
seven percent of the of the people were from Mexico, uh, different part from Mexico. Uh, there's so much production in Mexico that now even to find available people is a problem, I have to say. <laughs> I mean, you don't have too much choice because fortunately in Mexico now there are being produced like almost 200 films. So in a way, it, there is not a lot, I will say, there is not so much people in a way that can fulfill the needs. So for me, during the pandemic, I really have to get everything that it was available. But I think definitely something that has to be considered to put and to put more women. And as Guillermo said, I think for me in Mexico now, the most and most amazing films that I have seen is for, from women. Very last question, quickly. If you are, and I know none of you are, a professional figure skater, when you are not competing, you're working every day with a coach. And that coach is helping you perfect your art. There's no equivalent for filmmaking, I don't think. So when you think about how do you stay sharp, how do you get inspired, where do you look for inspiration, what would you say those things are? For me, snapping. <laughs> For me, it's watching movies. For me, it's just honestly, just uh, leave. So be, be, be literally aware that life is passing. I was telling that just the last 15 days, you suddenly realize that the sky is blue and the, the, the clouds are kind of white and you have a hot tea in your hands. And suddenly that kind of being present, uh, uh, not intellectually engaged necessarily with something, but just observing things happening in your body, your emotions, and obviously the things that happen, I think those always for me are the moments that in that space, in that silence, in that non-action is when something comes. So, I mean, I, I really look for those moments which are the most precious for me. Cabrones, hasta la próxima vez. Muchas gracias por el tiempo. Bye-bye, man. Thank you. Our John Horn in conversation with filmmakers Guillermo del Toro, Alejandro Gonzalez Iñárritu, and Alfonso Cuaron. If you missed out on any of our reviews of films this week, make sure you visit kpcc.org or wherever you get your podcasts to listen to the entire hour of Film Week. From all of us at Film Week, have a wonderful weekend. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.